Hi friend, if you love the information you hear in the podcast, then you will love the free mini series of videos that I've put together just for you. It's all about the biblical blueprint for health and teaches you exact principles I've taught to thousands of Christian women that result in weight loss, better sleep, increased energy, clearer skin, and sharper brains. You can go to thechristiannutritionist.com slash miniseries to grab this free set of short, powerful teachings that will show you how to create better health God's way. It's at thechristiannutritionist.com slash miniseries. Go check it out now. Hi, I'm Chelsea, the Christian Nutritionist. Welcome to the Christian Health Club podcast. We are here to fire you up in spirit, mind, and body so that you can get out into the world and be everything God created you to be. Welcome to the club. Here we go. Hello, my friend. Welcome back to the club. How are you today? We're going to talk about bread because y'all have turned into some bread making enthusiasts since we discussed the benefits of milling your own wheat grain and baking bread. I can't tell you the number of messages I've gotten from people who've started doing this and are loving it and just they're so excited to have real delicious bread back in their lives. I have to tell you about um, one local friend who has Crohn's and had not eaten any kind of grain for years and years and years and has slowly been introducing the freshly milled wheat back into her diet without issue. And she is like, this is a miracle. This is life changing. And every time I see her, she's just so grateful. And I'm so grateful to be the messenger. And I want to continue to bring you helpful information about this topic, which is what we're going to do today. I have my friend Maureen from God's Good Table back on the podcast to talk bread. She teaches online classes all about the art of making bread and is a great resource on this topic. So let's do it. Welcome Maureen to the Christian Health Club podcast. Hello. Thank you for having me on again, Chelsea. I'm happy to be here. I am so happy you're here. And you know what? I'm super excited that I'm going to actually get to meet you and hug you in person (laughs) at the God-given food event in August. Um, Let's talk quickly about that. Um, Tell us more about that because we might have some people that would like to go and I could hug and meet them in person too. It's going to (laughs) be so super neat. I am pumped about it. One of the coolest part is being able to hug people, to meet people, to look in their eyes um, you know, form even a, a better relationship because you're in person and just and get to know other people of like mind. So this is our second event. Next year, we're planning on doing several more around the country with a different theme, which will be food as medicine. But this year, we are focus, focusing on God-given food, which I think is such an important po- topic. Um, that that of course includes bread the staff of life so we're going to teach on that but the purpose of our event at polyface really is just to learn about what foods god gave us for our own bodily health and enjoyment 
and how to best utilize those foods. And we'll dabble just a little bit on overcoming um, certain illnesses and disorders using God-given foods. So it's a, it's just a super encouraging, edifying, um, life-changing event. Um, I have people speaking, including my friend Sophia Ang, who will be talking on traditional Asian food preparation methods. She and I will do a, um, a breakout session together. Um, Kat Owens, who writes beautifully about God-given foods. Pork Rine, my, my fun and famous friend, who will talk about meats, and, uh, and uh, he does like to focus on pork. <laughs> um, but Tommy and Luke from Raw Milk and Deadlifts will be talking about the importance and value in, um, in raw, unpasteurized milk from animals that are raised naturally. Um, Mike Dixon, the fit farmer, is going to speak about principles of food given in the Bible. Mandy Bloom will be talking about uh, God-given foods for raising healthy families and healthy children. She's the author of Real Food Recovery. And you, Chelsea, I'm so excited. And we're going to have you focus especially on the topic of fasting and the, the benefits and the real meaning of prayer and fasting from a biblical aspect. So... And, and I'll be teaching about bread. <laughs> so all of that. So August 11th through 13th. And you can find more information about that on our website, which is uh, God, godsgoodtable.com. So. I am honored to be a part of that. And I've always wanted to go to Polyface Farm. That's where the event's being held, just because yeah. I've always wanted to go there. Like, Joel Salatin is my, aside from my my husband, who is a rancher, Joel Salatin is my my other um, rancher hero and crush. Yeah. I'm just really I'm excited <laughs> to get to go there and meet him as well. So yeah. um, if anybody is in the area around Virginia around that time in August or traveling or wants to make a special point just to go and, um, and to this event, um, you can get the get the information um, at the God's Good Table website. So that yeah. is going to be incredible. Yeah, I'm excited. Well, let's talk some bread. So you gave yeah. us a lot of your background when we talked in episode 187. So if, if you haven't, listeners, if you haven't heard that, heard when Maureen was on before, I highly recommend going to listen to episode 187. Um, but why don't you give us a kind of a quick recap um, and background and specifically how you got into making bread, teaching it, and how long you've been doing it? Sure. So um, I grew up in a home where my mother made mostly processed foods. Um, she had a lot of health problems. Eventually, when I was about 12 years old, she gave up the processed foods. Now, she didn't go as far as she should have and could have gone, but she overcame most of her serious, uh, serious illnesses and disorders and um lost a lot of weight at the time. I, th I think it was like the equivalent of me. Um, that really stuck with me and, and remains in my head and in my heart all these years later. But I saw that in her body and her life that food had a tremendous impact. And because of that, I was... Um, oh, Because of that, I have always had a desire to learn more about food and nutrition and natural healing modalities. 
And that desire took me to conferences, events, and books, and eventually Nourishing Traditions by Sally Fallon Morell and the Weston A. Price Foundation, with which I have worked for more than 20 years now. Um, that's been life-changing. I've been so thankful for all that I have been able to learn and continue to learn. Um, I won't be done learning until the day I die. Um, but I really uh, not only appreciate and value learning and good information and evaluating all the information that there is out there, but I also intend to just keep learning and sharing. I really like to share to help others to overcome illness and have healthy families, healthy children, and that kind of thing. So that's the focus of God's Good Table. We keep on learning and we keep on teaching. Yeah, and bread in particular was something, again, I didn't cook when I was young. I did the dishes. <laughs> that was what I did in the kitchen. But um, bread making was just such a basic, fundamental thing in my mind that I chose to learn how to do it. Um, didn't have any real help or guidance, just tinkered around. Um, but eventually, with nourishing traditions in my hand, I started to tackle sourdough bread, and that was that was a, a pivotal moment in my life, and I've just run with it since then. I've produced three DVD programs, taught uh, classes not just on bread making and uh, proper use of grains, but also nutrition and fermentation. Um, I especially enjoy fermentation also, uh, but I've been doing that now for more than 20 years, so... Um, I, I utilize God-given principles in everything that I do, and I really think it's important that Christians open their eyes and begin to see that God gave us all of the instruction, all of the principles that we need to be healthy in His Word thousands of years ago, and we've been ignoring them, not seeing them. Um, a lot of principles have been hidden. We need to go back to these principles because straying from them does not have a good uh, outcome for our bodily health as well as our mental health. So we need to get back to it. Um, Amen to and, that. I'm with you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep, totally. Um, I first learned about the difference between milled off-the-shelf grains and flowers and, and whole grain, freshly milled flowers, more than 20 years ago. I really don't remember when. But once I understood that, for instance, whole, whole wheat flour, I use that with air quotes, whole wheat flour off the, the store shelf is not truly whole grain, even though it may sometimes use the words whole grain. If it's sitting on a grocery store shelf, it's not whole grain. It is lacking the wheat germ, which is the most nutritious part of the wheat. Now, we don't have to go into all of that in depth because you have done that with Sue Becker, and that is very, very important. And I listened with great interest to those podcasts, the two that you did with her and the third follow-up that you did um, in summation. So she covered a lot of good territory, but there were a couple of things that are missing in what I heard her speak to, and it... Um, I think that these two things are extremely, extremely important. And so I really want to go over those things in particular. Um, 
So if it's all right with you, we can focus on that right now. Um, and that sounds can... great. That sounds great. Yes, I. Um, the reason, actually, everybody, we we kind of started. I wanted to do this podcast is because I had been in contact with Maureen, and she's um, she's like, yeah, I heard that, and that's great. I think there were some things we could add to that that are important to know about. And I was like, oh, absolutely. So yes, take it away and you expound on whatever you think is most important. Okay, and uh, to that end, I'm going to begin with just the idea, the question of why are so many people gluten intolerant? Um, Obviously, we've already gone over some of those, or you have with Sue, going back to the true whole grain does make a difference and in particular for two reasons and one i'm going to go in depth i'm going to dig deep into but um, one of those is just a simple fact that what's called whole wheat as well as all-purpose or unbleached bread flours um, are mostly starches even whole wheat does have fiber in the bran but we're still consuming mostly starch and starch is just not good for us to overconsume for a multitude of reasons um, and I do think Sue hit on that fairly well but we're going to circle back to the starches when we fully address the question of why are we gluten intolerant and I would have to say a topic for another discussion would also be what to do. How, how can we heal our bodies when we are gluten intolerant? But that will encompass more than just gluten intolerance. When we have gut damage, we're going to have issues with other foods. We're going to have autoimmune issues, oftentimes mental health issues as well because of the damage that has been done. And it's gut damage in particular that makes us intolerant to gluten not exclusively so there are two sides of this coin and in my mind they are of equal importance so on the one hand you have the fact that most breads today are made with a lot of starch but also they have been hybridized grains have been hybridized of course for thousands of years people have always hybridized their animals and their crops in order to have the best outcome possible to take the best qualities and continue to build on those qualities well we've done that with our grains and so let's talk wheat in particular in the last 50 to 75 years but in particular the last 50 years one of the things that we have done with our hybridized grains is increase the gluten content. The reason that people, farmers, have increased the gluten content by, of course, selectively breeding different uh, varieties of wheat that have higher gluten contents and, you know, you, you can understand how you combine two, two um, I don't want to say species, but two different uh, plants or two different animals that have good qualities and you have this offspring, which potentially has even more of those qualities. You do this over and over. And in the last 50 years, we've come up with grains, in particular wheat, that have a tremendous amount of gluten. And gluten in such high amounts, in addition to the starch, can be highly problematic for our guts. 
So excess gluten and excess starches are really not healthy for our gut and not healthy for our body. Another issue is fermentation or the lack thereof and I'm going to circle back to that as well. Traditionally, people have always sprouted, soaked, or fermented their grains, and there are important things that happen with that. But the thing that I really want to hit on that's just huge and that I think is probably the biggest factor in why people milling their own grains have a, an easier time perhaps can completely overcome intolerances, and that is toxic chemical input. If you're grinding and milling your own grain, you're probably buying grains that are organic or sustainably raised without the input of, in particular, glyphosate, but also other chemicals in the atrazine family, for instance. There are many used on the production of grains. But glyphosate is a huge, huge factor. Um, Stephanie Senoff from MIT, she's a, a really um, passionate researcher. She has done uh, or composed pages and pages and pages of research and written on and on and on about all of the problems with glyphosate. Now glyphosate is sprayed on many things, but in the production of grains, it's, it's sprayed on multiple times. So when a farmer is producing grain, the first thing that they're going to do when they plant a conventional crop is spray glyphosate and other chemicals on what is essentially dead soil. So that's something to consider as well. With the um, conventional model of farming right now across the board, it relies heavily on chemical inputs. Those chemicals, aside from glyphosate, but in addition to that as well, destroy the microbes in the soil. I oftentimes notice in the fall when, um, for instance, corn has been harvested or soybeans, which are toxic in and of themselves to the human body. But you can drive by the fields and you see that the plants are not actually decaying, breaking down the way that God intended them to. It's because the chemical input in the production of that crop has destroyed the microbiology of the soil. When you destroy that microbiology of the soil, it damages the plants, it damages the animals and the people who eat those plants and eat the animals eating those plants. But we're also taking in the toxic load of those chemicals. However, in conventional grain production, not only is the soil being sprayed prior to planting, the soil is sprayed during the growing season to hold back grasses and what are commonly called weeds. I don't like to call weeds weeds because every plant has a purpose. Um, but the most incriminating and damaging thing of all, I think, is that in order to harvest the grains all at once, uh, for instance, kernels of wheat do not necessarily ripe all at the same time. 
If you can picture a field of wheat and the wind rustling through it, um, the sun will hit various patches of ground and and uh, heads of grain at varying intensities throughout the day and the growing season. And so in order to harvest grain that is all ripe, glyphosate is used as what is commonly called a desiccant. What that does is it forces all of the heads of grain to loose their moisture and essentially be ripe and ready for harvest all at once. So you have to understand that those heads of grain that we're going to consume, and we might be thinking that whole grain freshly milled is the answer to nutrition and helping our gut to handle um, handle and our, be, our ability to enjoy, say, bread and pasta, is actually destroyed. We're working against our bodily health when we consume that, even if it's whole, because we're actually taking in a very hefty load of toxins with every mouthful. And in addition to that, while technically genetically modified grains are not allowed on the American marketplace, nor are they allowed in Europe or Asia or South America, they are present. So we have test fields of genetically modified wheat, for instance, but the pollen escapes those fields just as it does with soy and with other things and it contaminates organic production. And so we, we can't really say that there is not genetically modified grain in our, even our organic crops necessarily, but we definitely cannot say that there are not genetically modified wheat of various sorts on the market either. They're not labeled that, they may not intentionally be genetically modified, but there is contamination, and we know this. Many studies have been done on various grains. For instance, in Mexico, in a particular valley where there is an institute that produces traditional forms of corn, of maize, they are miles away from genetically modified corn crops, and yet the wind and the bees travel with that pollen and cross-pollinate, therefore contaminating the maize in this protected valley. And they have found several, well, they found that every variety of corn that they're producing there is actually contaminated with the genetically modified corn. Well, the same happens with wheat as well. And anytime we play God with our genes, with our bodies, with our animals, with our plants, and with our weather, I might add, whenever we play God and try to alter his design, we should expect for there to be problems. So intentional or not, I do believe that there is also contamination from genetically modified wheat in particular, also um, some other crops. Of course, uh, soybean and corn are big. But aside from that, for me, the biggest issue is still the input of toxic chemicals that we're putting directly into our bodies. 
So now when we switch to milling our own flour and making our own our own flour to produce breads and everything else we would use a flour for, um, we're going to find one of two things. A lot of times, as a lot of your listeners have responded, we find that we can consume these grains without problem. And it's going to usually be because whether or not it's intentional, we're actually consuming milling grains that do not have that toxic overload. Now, I know a, um, a family-run farm in, in Maryland where we used to get our grain for our chickens and our other animals. They were conventionally producing, using glyphosate in particular and other things, three times in the growing season, as I just described. I talked with them because they were otherwise producing what could have been a good product. They were refusing genetically modified plants and seeds, but they were still spraying. And uh, I wouldn't use their grain. I found a source that was growing all natural grains, no chemicals and all of that, and I stuck with them. But eventually, this family saw the wisdom in what I had spoken to them about, and they stopped spraying. Now, they still spray in the beginning of the growing season, and others are asking them to please stop, and, and by now they may have actually stopped. But my point is that with every application of pesticide, herbicide, fungicide, you are putting toxic chemicals into that plant and into that grain that is going directly into our bodies. And just with glyphosate, it disturbs the metabolic pathway. It damages the gut. It causes cancer. It does all kinds of horrible things. So when your listeners are converting to milling their own grain, they're probably not taking in grains that are conventionally produced. So they're, they may be perfectly fine and able to enjoy their grain products, and that's wonderful. But for those who cannot, it's going to be because of gut damage. And I believe that there are two main reasons for the, for the massive gut damage that we are experiencing as a nation today and around the world, but especially in the U.S. And that is this toxic overload coupled with pharmaceutical input. We tend to take way too many antibiotics and other pharmaceuticals, and they all have consequences as well. And especially with antibiotics and a few other classes of pharmaceuticals, they do attack the gut. So if you're one of those people who still can't consume, say, a, a piece of bread, from organic freshly milled flour, you've got a damaged gut. But I would also suggest that if you have any type of autoimmune issue, if there are mental health problems within your family, you need to look at gut damage and that needs to be addressed. And as I mentioned earlier, that's a whole nother topic. I do work with people on that. I've helped my own family and others on healing a damaged gut. But we have to address the chemical input, whether it be pharmaceutical or especially the toxins that we're taking in with our grains. 
once the damage is done, we've got to reverse it. We've got to heal, not just so that we can enjoy a piece of bread, but so that our bodies and our brains can be physically healthy. The, and then the other thing is um, going back to the fermentation. Traditionally, throughout all of human history, up until the last 50 to 70 years, people have always produced bread through a method of fermentation. And it's really important because God put in place in every seed, nut, and grain, I'm just going to generally say seeds because they all are, he put in place certain factors that protect that seed from sprouting at the wrong time. If you can imagine that uh, you scatter wheat onto a field to grow in the middle of summer, and it's warm, and it's you get good rain, and so it's moist, and it sprouts, but then you have a hot, dry spell, and it's going to wither away and die. You won't be able to continue crop production. Um, Accordingly, if you plant something in the middle of the winter and even we have a, a warm spell, it sprouts, and then we have another freeze, it's going to die. There goes your crop. So God, in all of his wisdom, put in place several factors, in particular on the coating of grains, that protect from sprouting out of season. So the factors that are involved in in this safety mechanism include phytic acid. Now many people think phytic acid is good for some things and it does have a purpose, but in our gut when we're taking it every day, it causes harm. It's antagonistic within to the uh, to the microbes and the lining of the gut. And the other thing is um, enzyme inhibitors. Enzyme inhibitors specifically prevent the seed from sprouting out of season. However, there are things that humans have always done, and one that even occurs naturally, that neutralize those factors. And in so doing, it protects our gut, and it actually increases the intake of minerals when we're consuming these grain products because the enzyme, and enzyme inhibitors and the phytic acids are neutralized. Those things which work in combination, in concert, to neutralize those antagonists include moisture, acidity, warmth, and time. It takes time to make a loaf of sourdough bread. It takes time for a seed to sprout, and sprouted grains are a a common, uh, a common form of grain consumption around the world. Um, so if we can go back to these methods, then we're actually protecting our gut and um, we're not causing further damage. We're also producing a, an end product that has far more flavor a loaf of bread that you can make in a couple of hours with baking yeast, which I might mention, is almost always genetically modified. Nearly 
any baking yeast on the market is genetically modified. And again, we need to stay away from playing God with our bodies, our plants, etc. We need to avoid genetically modified foods as a whole. Um, and I just lost my train of thought. <laughs> um, when we ferment our grains, it we are utilizing the time factor, the moisture factor, the warmth factor. And so all of that is neutralized. This is where sourdough bread and sourdough anything, I, I make cakes, cookies, waffles, anything with sourdough. Um, but I will mention also that I employ a method of um, bread production in my own home, which is uh, an old European method. It originally was derived from utilizing the leftover yeast from brewing beer. Um, that's where our baking yeast originally came from. And in that, I use a, a starter called a poolish, which I make in about four hours time. And otherwise I proceed as with sourdough. But with that poolish, I'm using just a pinch of a non-GMO yeast. Um, I believe I have one on our website, on our resource page at godsgoodtable.com. It is SAF Instant Yeast out of France, S-A-F, SAF, non-GMO, and it's double acting. It works beautifully. I buy one package, it usually lasts me about three years, and I bake a lot of bread. As a matter of fact, next week I have to make 50 loaves for an event. So it doesn't take much to use that method, and I do not have to maintain a sourdough starter to employ that method. So I like that. But I also often use my own sourdough starter if they're easy to make. It's fun to share with friends. My daughter-in-law has one that has been handed down through several friends and families. My daughter has one the same. And when I need a sourdough starter, I can make my own or I'll just say, hey, Claire, can I have, you know, can I have a half cup of your starter? I need to make sourdough. And I'll get it from her. So it's not at all difficult to obtain or create a sourdough starter. It's also easy to make the poolish. I do have a sourdough and artisan bread baking um, course on my website. And I also have a link for an intensive course that I did for the School of Traditional Skills. I filmed that last year, so both of those links are on our website. But the point is, when you make a starter, whether it be sourdough or poolish, and actually I've also done kefir starter, yogurt starter. Um, I've made a starter from grape skins. There are a lot of really fun things you can do and experiment with. But in the end, you're still using natural yeast and you're putting your dough through a long process that both breaks down what we collectively call anti-nutrients that, that can definitely cause gut damage and also bind, the phytic acid binds to minerals in our gut and we excrete them instead of absorbing them. But this method or methods also create a far more flavorful loaf. So 
this is why if you go to an old-fashioned bakery and you buy a real a real loaf of sourdough or you create it yourself it tastes a lot different a lot better than that loaf that looks like sourdough or looks like an artisanal loaf but it actually isn't and our sourdough or or artisanal loaves are far better for our bodies that said when there has been real gut damage one of the most important factors in healing is actually avoiding all grains along with a couple of other things um, for a period of time until until your gut is able to heal. So avoiding grains is an important factor in that. Um, I've had to do that myself, um, and I've helped a lot of other people with that. But we want to recover from that, not just so we can enjoy a piece of bread. And, and I'll tell you what, when I, I bake bread, usually a couple times a week in large quantities, it's the only bread that I'll eat. I'll eat a slice of mine or one of my daughters or daughters-in-law because I know that they're doing things right. And I, I always say that bread is the vehicle by which butter enters my mouth. <laughs> and I laugh about that, but it's true. Butter is a fabulous God-given food filled with nutrients when it's clean, and especially when it's uh, grass-fed, naturally raised, um, coming from that source, that type of a source of dairy. But man, that is so enjoyable. However, gut healing isn't just so we can enjoy the taste. It, it is to restore bodily function and overall health. So it's important to go back to those old ways after we can heal, if if that's the case, if we need that. And it's also best to go back to these methods of fermentation so that we can maintain a healthy gut, so we can alleviate any problems that might come from that. So even if you had problems eating bread products and then you switch to milling your own grain and your grain is clean and it tastes good and everything's fine, it is still always, always the best thing for your body and, your, and those of your family members to go back to producing naturally leavened breads. Um, grains should be sprouted if they're going into pastas and that kind of thing. Um, and, and to that, um, I'll point out that even in biblical passages, such as um, Jesus swiping the grain from a stalk of wheat as he was passing by and eating it and of course he was reprimanded for that by the powers that be um, that grain was sitting out in the field weathering naturally so remember i talked about those principles of uh, moisture warmth moisture warmth acidity and um, time and in particular moisture warmth and time Grain used to be weathered in the field. Weathering also begins the breakdown of those anti-nutrients because you have the factor. It can Think about uh, the pictures that we have from times gone by, and there are still people doing this around the world today, of gathering the sheaves of grain. I remember reading Anna Karenina, uh, years ago, I devoured that book in two days. Um, it was fabulous. But 
in that book there is a wonderful illustration of the Russian peasants harvesting their wheat crop. They went out with their sheaths and they cut and they stacked and they wrapped and the sheaves of grain stood upright in the field weathering for a day or two before they were taken in and uh, put placed on the threshing floor for the seed heads to be separated from the chafe. Well, those sheaths of grain are being exposed to moisture, the dew of the night, warmth from the sun, and they're allowed the time to actually weather and break down the anti-nutrients. So that's, in essence, sprouting. Anytime you sprout a grain, you're accomplishing the same thing as fermentation. So grains should always be at least weathered or sprouted. If obviously, I'm, I'm not going out and uh, planting grains in my garden. I'm buying them. But I do sometimes sprout or soak. If I mill my grain fresh and I want to make, say, pancakes, I, I mix a, a simple batter, not a complete batter, involving yogurt or whey or kefir, and I mix that in with the flour and it sits overnight before I add maybe honey or whole sugar, salt, baking powder, whatever I'm going to add to that to make my end product. Um, so just soaking overnight, if you're not actually making a long fermented bread, you can soak overnight. But I think we're talking mostly about bread. And in that, um, a starter should be proofed for, at least, if it's a sourdough starter, it should sit for at least an hour. But then when you make the dough, the dough really needs to proof for at least five hours. I typically go seven, eight, nine hours before I ever shape my loaves. The longer the fermentation, the better, up until a point. What is happening during that period of fermentation is the naturally occurring yeast and microbes are breaking down the gluten, consuming the carbohydrates, releasing carbon dioxide, which is why you get the bubbles. Um, the longer you let that go, the more flavor you will, um, and the better flavor you will achieve. However, it gets more and more sour if you let it go for too long, while at the same time as the microbes are consuming carbohydrates, eventually they get a little weak. They've consumed a lot of carbohydrate. There's not a lot left. So you can't just leave a pan or a bowl of sourdough dough on the counter for a day or two and expect it to be anything but sour and somewhat flat. You can slow down the process and refrigerate it overnight. Many people do that, including my daughter. That's her regular method. Um, it accomplishes the same thing as I do on, the, on my countertop in five or six or seven to even as many as nine hours. And it just slows it down, but creates the same effect. And then you can take it out of the refrigerator in the morning and shape it and make your bread out of it. But you still have to have that time, the warmth. And even on a refrigerated dough, you're bringing it out. It's regaining the warmth. It has slowly cooled in the, in the refrigerator. The microbes have become 
much less active, but they're still busily eating the carbs and doing their magic just at a much slower pace. So the outcome is a loaf of bread that has wonderful flavor and does not have the irritating factors that a non-fermented loaf would have. And we're going to create this without using grains that have been sprayed. We've got to minimize that toxic overload. Um, I'm really concerned about the health of our nation in every way right now. But when it comes at least to our bodily health, this is a really important factor. We've, we've so far removed ourselves from traditional bread making and traditional farming practices. Um, Chelsea, you, you mentioned how excited you are to go to Joel's Polyface Farm, and it is, it is just a beautiful place where you see land in a constant state of regeneration. We need that. We need to be consuming foods from that kind of land in order for our own bodies to be constantly regenerating in a healthy way, and then for us to produce healthy children. So, super important. Yeah. That is all such good information. So, okay, so I'm thinking about all my people here who are like, all right, I got a mill um, and I've got grain. So number one, the number one kind of step here is to make sure we're buying organic grain. We're not, we can't That's just be right. using any old grain. Okay, so we're, we get our organic grain. From there, and so a lot of people at this point... <laughs> Including me. Hello. <laughs> See, there's always room to improve. That's why I wanted to have you on. Um, we're going to upgrade. So, um, is to have the, you know, mill the grain and then make the bread. And so, if we're taking that next step towards better health, what we're really working on is is preventing the anti-nutrients from damaging our gut. So, that's really what these next steps are about with um, soaking and fermenting. So yes. if somebody is make so are, do you have to soak are these the are these synonymous are these the same thing are you soaking your dough and then I mean is it the sourdough I'm a little bit confused like um, okay. So there are basically two classifications of baking with grains. One is bread making through fermentation and the other is baking anything else you would want to do. Um, in which case you would be soaking or you can sprout or you can buy sprouted grains and that's fine too. I do uh, about once a year order from healthyflowers.com. I get whole organic sprouted grain from them and they also sell freshly milled flowers that you can, if you can get them quick enough and stick them in their free in your freezer, you'll be okay. But, um, I typically buy their whole sprouted grain and then that, uh, that anti-nutrient content has been neutralized in the sprouting process. At that point, you can do anything you want with it. You can make bread, you can make cookies, you can make cake, you can make pancakes and waffles, anything that you would want to make from a grain product you can do with a pre-sprouted grain. I used to sprout my grains myself. You can do that. It is a bit tedious. I used to sprout uh, maybe five pounds at a time in gallon jars 
rinsing a couple of times a day, um, rinsing, straining until I saw that my grains had little sprouts. At which point, I would spread them out on a baking sheet and put them in my oven at 150 degrees and let them dry overnight. You have to kind of stir them up from time to time. You can't have a thick layer or you'll develop mold. Um, so just a thin layer of grain, dehydrate it, and once it is dry, then you can pack it into the freezer and grind it as you need it. That's perfectly fine. Do anything you want with that or buy the pre-sprouted grains. Otherwise, say you're going to make pancakes and typically you might use two cups of flour and one and a half cups of buttermilk um, or you could use yogurt. Typically that's what I would use. Um, you just mix the flour and the liquid together. So flour, buttermilk, flour, yogurt, whatever you're going to use. Whey is fine too. You'll just mix that up in a bowl, cover it up with saran wrap or a, or a towel. I like, to use, I like to use a damp towel. And then let it sit overnight. In the morning, you add all of your other ingredients. You can add more milk or, or whatever you'd like if it needs to be um, a little thinner. It's perfectly fine to add liquid for that purpose. And then proceed as usual. Otherwise, you're doing the fermentation process. You're actually using either a sourdough or a poolish to make primarily bread. But I also use that same method to make waffles, pancakes. I tend to like waffles more than pancakes. Tortillas cake, um, muffins, anything else you'd like to make, you can do with a fermented starter. It's a, it's a little bit different of a process to do the baked goods. It's a lot of fun to play with, but if you're one of those people who needs absolutely precise uh, methods at, or ingredients, measurements, and all of that, um, I do have some of that within my course. And in the intensive course that I did for School of Traditional Skills, again, the link is on our website. Um, uh, there I have more specific um, measurements for doing all of these other things. However, I will say that I'm also this week publishing the first of a two-part series on uh, fermentation. So I will put um, probably tomorrow the first part will be up and there will be very specific instructions for a sourdough and for, for sourdough bread and then next week I'll go into other, other processes as well. So I will have both of those up on my website within the week, within the next week. Um, but for making bread, I do it by feel. Um, there are lots of videos. Um, I think there are lots of videos even available. I think um, I think through the link, you know, I haven't really looked. I've seen lots come out from School of Traditional Skills, and I think I have some things on our YouTube channel. Uh, so if you're just really new to bread making, I would suggest taking taking one of the courses. Certainly, you can look on YouTube and find instructions. 
it's not that difficult. The keys to good bread making and a, a satisfactory product include uh, don't over knead, don't make your dough too dry. It's actually better to be too loose than too dry. Give it enough time. Um, and you work your dough until it's what I like to say is soft as a baby's bottom. So it's smooth, it's elastic, it's, it's nice and soft and cohesive. Um, it is a process to learn. It's not a difficult thing. But, you know, you might not have a perfect loaf the first time you try, and that's okay. It's probably still okay to eat it like crackers or feed it to the chickens if you have to. I've done, I've done that more than once. But you don't have to be intimidated by the process. And you shouldn't expect to have it perfect the first time. It's okay. Just keep on trying. My kids grew up making bread with me, so when they've gone out on their own, the couple that continue to do this, they've had no trouble picking it up, and they've taken off and done their own things with it and had lots of fun. And uh, My daughter Claire is a very well-respected sourdough bread maker. My daughter, daughter-in-law where I'm staying right now, makes beautiful bread following the same methods. If you wanted to look for a book about this, my two favorite books are Bouchon Bakery by Thomas Keller, in which you can learn the entire process of making a poolish. And he doesn't do sourdough starters per se, but he uses a poolish method. Um, and the other is The Village Baker. Um, just an excellent resource, uh, either of those. Bouchon Bakery goes into detail with things like laminated doughs, i.e. danishes, croissants, that kind of thing, which is still a long fermented dough. Um, the Village Baker goes into all kinds of things. So both of those are good books. I have links to those on our website as well. Um, perhaps you have a friend. You know, many years ago, when I was really interested in learning about traditional bread making methods, I found a local baker who learned to bake in Europe. Not every town is going to have somebody like this, but in my little town at the time of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, we had a guy who just, like me, loved to bake bread. and. So he opened a bakery and all of his breads were traditional European style, fully fermented. I went to him and asked if he would teach me. He allowed me to come into the bakery and work with him. Um, he taught a workshop for me that I invited others to. Um, and he came and demonstrated for a group that I got together. So you might have access to someone like that. Um, I'm really happy to see as I travel around that oftentimes even little towns have somebody like that that you can learn from. Um, so just look around. You can go and um, oftentimes people won't mind if you pick their brains or watch them to see how they do things. But you can also just do that just as easily, easier, by watching YouTube videos or taking a class. Um, I often teach classes around the country that bread making is the one class that I am asked to teach more than anything else. Um, 
but you don't need me to come and teach you. There are many resources, and uh, I would I would encourage you to consider looking at my class, but uh, I know that there are people everywhere who can help you. So don't be intimidated, I think, is the bottom line. Well, frankly, it sounds a little, this all sounds a little intimidating. <laughs> <laughs> but Chelsea, you went from store-bought bread to buying a mill and milling your own grain, making your own bread. This is actually not much different. You know you're learning the process of yeast bread and the feel of the dough. That's, that's the key element is just understanding how to knead and how the dough should feel. If you get to that point, you're fine. Everything else is easy. The only difference is time. Time is the biggest factor and it's also the easiest. So if you can just learn a gentle kneading process, understand how the dough should look and feel, then you can make any kind of bread. It doesn't matter. We're just adding the time factor. Does this poolish, am I saying that correctly, method, mm -hmm. you said that uses a, did you say that uses a yeast? It does. So it uses, I utilize and recommend that you only utilize a non-GMO packaged yeast. I use, again, SAF, S-A-F, from France. I buy it on Amazon. I have a link on my website for that. And I, I buy a one-pound brick. It's approximately a pound. It may be in kilos. Um, and that literally lasts me for years. I stick it in the freezer in a package, and I take a little out as I need it. The basic formula for that is one cup of flour level across the top, one cup, one fluid cup of water. Now it's important that you use non-chlorinated untreated water. So if you have to, just keep spring water on hand for this because when water has been treated with chemicals, the chemicals will destroy the yeast. So untreated water one fluid cup of untreated water, one level cup by volume of freshly milled flour, one eighth teaspoon of SAF instant yeast. You mix that up. Um, I like to use my dough hook. Um, I have resources for everything related to bread baking that I use and that I love. It's not on our resource list unless I personally use it and, and really like it and recommend it. So I use a dough hook, and um, once I've mixed this up, I cover it usually with plastic wrap to just keep it keep it from drying out, for one thing. And then you set it aside on the counter for about four hours. If your house is cold, it might take five hours. If your house is extra warm that day, it might take two and a half or three. But what you're looking for is a very busy bubbly, I like to say a happy concoction. It will be about the consistency of pancake batter, but it will have not just little tiny bubbles around the edges, it will have bubbles all over. And it'll begin to smell just slightly yeasty. That's a happy active starter and you're ready to go. If you are using sourdough starter, I do a discard of my, unless I'm using it every day, I discard 
half of my starter and refresh it. And this is where it gets into there are more instructions. Um, but I use the discard for other things and then I refresh my starter and I'll take out, after the starter has sat for about four hours and is happy, I'll take one cup of that and begin the process of bread making. One cup of starter, one cup of water, one cup of flour. I mix that up, give it enough time that it's bubbly and happy, and then I add the rest of my flour. And don't forget, and don't be afraid, to add salt. Salt does two things, and we should never be afraid of salt. Every cell in our body needs it. None of us should be on a low-salt diet. What we all should be doing is consuming only unrefined salt with all of its minerals intact, the way that God gave it to us. Again, I just keep, in my mind, everything goes back to God-given food. In a bread dough or a baked product, salt does two things. It tempers the yeast. It kind of keeps them in check. It's like the policeman going, okay, you can have some fun, but don't get too active here. Don't get out of line. It tempers the growth and action of the yeast, so it stays under control. But it also gives you flavor. Have you ever noticed how if you taste unsalted butter and then you taste salted butter, the unsalted butter really tastes dull. But if you taste salted butter, it tastes good. It's not that you're tasting the salt itself. It's you're able to taste the flavor of the food because the salt brings the flavor out. And again, we have analogies in the body, in the Bible, excuse me, about has salt lost its saltiness? Um, salt actually doesn't lose its saltiness. That's not the point of that verse. But salt brings forth or brings out the flavor in foods, and this includes bread. I have accidentally forgotten to put the salt in more than once. My loaves still come out good, but they just taste dull. So I end up sprinkling salt on them and adding a little salt to the butter. But you really do want to incorporate unrefined salt. I use Redmond sea salt or Celtic sea salt primarily. There are other salts like Himalayan sea salts, which are fine. I'm very leery of the term sea salt. I wrote an article about that. That's on my website, too, and that's, again, another topic. But just use a whole unrefined salt. Um, it does provide minerals that help the structure of the bread as well. So don't avoid that. But your loaf of bread can be just as simple as water, um, flour. If you're using a sourdough, you're not adding yeast. You're incorporating yeast that is wild and natural in the air. And salt. That's, that's all you need, those three ingredients. But of course, you can go way beyond that. And I have lots of fun. I make a sandwich loaf in which I add a little lard and a little ghee, and um, an unrefined sugar, eggs, and I use yogurt or milk. I mean, yogurt makes it extra soft um, because there are more microbes that work within the dough to make it even better. So you can play around cinnamon rolls, not a problem. Um, 
any type of bread that you would want to make and any traditional type of bread that we are that we are are fond of they've always been made using old-fashioned fermentation methods it's only in modern times that they've been made as yeast breads would you say is the poolish method a little less tedious than the sourdough it is because you do not have to maintain the sourdough yes okay Um, i think that's what i think that sounds like where i need to start yeah, I think really it's so much easier. Um, I maintained a sourdough starter for years and years, and then I read Bouchon Bakery and I thought, this is crazy. Why am I doing this sourdough? Well, it is still fun to do a sourdough, and I I'll maintain a sourdough for several months. My the last one I probably did for close to a year, but I tire of having to take care of it, especially if you're not home all the time. I travel a lot, so I don't really want to be maintaining that sourdough starter. The poolish takes care of that. Super easy. Don't have to worry about feeding. And the end results are exactly the same. I've I've made no, um, discovered no differences between the two. None at all. That is so good to know. Because, yeah, I've killed, I say I kill starter dose, um, sourdough starters like I kill plants like I can't keep it either one alive <laughs> so that is I, I one reason I, I know and I love I love both but it's, it's not my gift Maureen it's not my gift yeah. but I'm like okay maybe I can try this poolish method but the poolish so using this um this I get it's kind of like a almost like a yeast starter it sounds like I mean it's it not is, you're not is, directly a, you know you're using it eighth of a teaspoon of yeast per cup of flour. It's a minute amount of yeast, but it's just enough. And what you're doing in those few hours where the yeast and water and flour are working together is you're creating an abundant yeast colony within that starter that'll do anything. Um, so you're you're accomplishing the same thing as with a sourdough. You're just not using wild yeast. You're using uh, non-genetically modified yeast from from brewing, which is where it all came from. But I think it would be a really good idea also to touch on types of grains for different purposes. Do you do you want to go there for a minute too? Sure, sure. Okay, so. For bread making, for any type of baking, here are the grains that I use. Um, My go-to grain is spelt. I use a lot of emmer, einkorn, kamut, rye, and for me, wheat is almost a, oh, did I forget about that kind of thing? It doesn't really matter. primarily use wheat in the unbleached organic form just for working the last bit of my dough, just to lighten it up a little bit. Um, I buy all of those whole and I grind them as I need them. So spelt is wonderful. It is a non, it's been hybridized, but never genetically modified. There are a couple of different kinds for bread making. I tend to use Maverick. Emmer einkorn are emmer einkorn. They have slightly different flavors. They're old fashioned. They, they're great heirloom grains with, uh, with really good results. 
Rye has a lower gluten content. In fact, I've read that it's not actual gluten as we know it. Gluten actually takes several different forms, and the one that is most common is that that's found in wheat or spelt. So there is a gluten protein in rye, but it's not the same as what you'd find in wheat. And uh, while a whole grain rye makes a great loaf of bread, it does tend to be more sour and earthy. I always recommend mixing it with other grains. So I incorporate no more than 25% rye in any of my baked goods. So we've got spelt, emmer, einkorn, rye. Um, Kamut is another ancient grain, another ancient form of wheat. It has a slightly lower gluten content. I don't recommend making a full Kamut loaf, but again, like the rye, incorporate it into a multi-grain and go from there. And then wheat is classified um, in two separate categories hard or soft. Hard winter wheat or spring wheat, soft wheat is the general breakdown. Hard winter wheat makes great bread. The soft spring wheat is what you typically would use for cookies and cakes and that kind of thing. It has a much lower gluten content. So if you make if you make cookies, for instance, with hard winter wheat, they're going to be a little tough because the gluten content creates a different texture. That's why we have the soft wheats. So we've got hard and soft, winter and spring for the wheat category. It's perfectly fine to incorporate a small portion of soft wheat in your bread baking. But again, not more than 10 or 20%. Even 25 is okay, but you want the higher gluten content to produce the best uh, loaves that rise. Gluten provides the structure and the strength to hold the air bubbles, well, the carbon dioxide bubbles, which is how you get the rise. That's why we want a higher gluten content for bread baking. If you're baking um, cookies or something like that, um, any anything else, it doesn't need to rise a lot, and especially if, say, you're doing sprouted grains or a soaked dough to make something, you can use a soft variety. But for bread making, you want to bring the gluten content up so that the gluten literally is the strength, the glue that holds the carbon dioxide bubbles in that bread. Does that make sense? Yes, that does make okay. sense. Okay, this is this is good information. It's it really is like an art form. It is, but it, again, it does not need to be intimidating. If all you do is make a simple loaf of bread, sourdough or artisanal poolish or sourdough, either one, it does not have to be intimidating. When you master that, and it should not take long. If you have your factors of time, temperature, and moisture level correct, and you've figured out the kneading, the rest of it should come fairly easily. Um, I have some tools that, that make bread making easier, and even that make the cleanup easier. I use a very large sil silicone mat um, 
I do my kneading and my shaping on that because it contains the mess and I can carry it right over to the sink and rinse it off. But that also, the, the mat that I have on my resource list has measurements and tips on it, so it's kind of nice, you know. But uh, use the right tools and just work on a basic loaf and you should get that fairly easily within a short period of time, a few tries maybe. Most people get it on their first or second try. And then if you feel like it, have fun and go out and do more things. Um, I will be posting recipes for with more ideas. Um, my second part to the article does contain some of those ideas and I'm pretty sure I have articles on the website now with more ideas as well. So look around and um, maybe watch what other people are doing as well because it is like an art form in that the possibilities are endless and uh, it can be so much fun. You know, what is the quintessential gift to bring your neighbor or bring to um, bring to a potluck or bring to um, a person who's sick. How about a, a nice quart of good soup made with real broth and a loaf of bread and good butter? I, I do this all the time. Um, it's just so soothing and comforting and even encouraging. So it's, a, it's something... To learn to make good bread is something that is a gift that you can just keep on giving and giving and giving, while at the same time you receive the benefit of um, just the pleasure that you're giving other people. And for me, it's the pleasure of working with that dough. I have made bread for as many as 1,300 people at a time. I still do it by hand. It's hard when you're working with, you know, maybe 50 pounds of dough. It's difficult, it's a workout. But it feels so good to me to have my hands in that dough, to feel it all coming together until you get that beautiful, smooth, elastic feel. Typically I'm doing four to six loaves at a time. <laughs> Next week, 50. Um, oh my gosh, that's so just, many. It's a, but it's a pleasant thing. And I hope that you and your listeners will find the same, that you'll just enjoy it. And uh, I think it, one of the things that I like about it is that it slows me down. Um, sometimes I'm in a hurry to get those loaves out. But it slows me down and gives me a few minutes of just peace and calm and tactile um, sensations that just kind of ground me, I guess. It just feels good. If you take the time to learn it and appreciate it, it just feels good. And then you share well, it with I, those that you love. I love that. And this has been so good, I think, because we, ha you know, like I said, people just have been so excited about bringing bread back in. And this is kind of yeah. taking that next step of um, optimizing the health benefits of it by really, you know, looking at the the quality of the ingredients that you're using mm -hmm. 
and then yeah. utilizing these these old these ancient processes which um i know it's just so fascinating how our ancestors instinctively knew how to do this yeah. um but but that just yeah really reduces that anti-nutrient um, issue which can be damaging to the gut so I love yeah. this because this is like next steps for people like okay I've got the mill I've got you know got my organic grain and now I can try this next step so I appreciate yeah. every all the information that you brought um, today Thank I think you. that's wonderful I and I would share. yeah and have everybody for sure you know go to your website go to God's Good Table and check out all the, and um, we'll put some links in the show notes uh, here too, so we, everybody can find you better. Um, yeah, and that's the best place be, to go, right? It, it is. And then at our event, which we had people come from as far away as California last year. You can come from anywhere. There are plenty of places to stay, but it is, it is going to be such an information-packed and edifying, encouraging event um, I will be speaking on bread making, and we may even we may choose to do a, a breakout session with bread making. But I will go over the steps, the processes, the benefits, the variations, and that kind of thing. I do want to really um, focus, especially on bread as the staff of life. We are meant to be able to consume bread. We're meant to take this in as a gift from God, as a as the staple. Um, to fulfill our appetites and to focus on Jesus being the bread of life. That analogy is just perfect. It makes me sad that so many today can't do that. I want to help people get back to being able to consume breads. And if it requires healing your gut first and then working truly, um, truly wholesome fermented breads into your diet, that's that's where we go first once we're introducing grains it's got to be fermented so i almost want to say i want you to be able to eat bread just so you can enjoy it so let's work on gut healing too but for those of you who can eat bread who don't have those issues please consider doing these fermented soaked or sprouted methods so that we maintain our gut integrity and our ability to enjoy life and enjoy bread with lots of butter or olive oil. <laughs> yes, oh, that's that's the way to do it. Oh, that's incredible. Well, before I let you go, um, I have to ask you again the the anchor questions that I ask all my guests, which is, what is your anchor your anchor meal, your go to healthy meal, and a, a favorite anchor Bible verse? Just, you know, an ongoing favorite or one that's kind of resonating with you right now. Yeah, well, my favorite go-to meal is going to be um, my brined herb roasted chicken or a good hearty soup made with chicken stock, a loaf of good bread with grass-fed raw butter. And then I just, my mind always goes to, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Um... I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made, Psalm 139.14. I go to that because that's what grounds me when I start to wonder what to do or am I worthy even, and I start to have a lot of self, self-doubt. God made me, and he certainly, as my creator, also knows 
how I should act, how I should eat, and how I should be in order to be the person he designed me to be. That's so beautiful. There you, go. there you go. And that's a wonderful way to, to close us out today. Thanks so much, Maureen. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Again, I'm just happy to share. Yeah. And I will see you in August at Polyface Farms, and I hope some of the yeah. listeners will make it there too. So check out the information for that event at God's Good Table. And thank yeah. you all for listening. I hope you have a healthy and blessed week, and I will talk to you soon. Remember that my mom is an awesome nutritionist, but she's not a doctor. The information in this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Always talk to your doctor before making changes to your nutrition or exercise program. Thanks for listening. Have a healthy and blessed week.